mandatory redistribution party. From 1936 to 39, Spain was home to a civil war that ended with Franco's victory, helped by fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. In that short period, much of Spain's industry and agriculture was run collectively by workers, a long-time objective of many of the left. And maybe a nan who lives in Benidorm. To find out more about this, I talked to historian and specialist in Spanish anarchism, James Yeoman. In this episode, we also rank some bad monarchs and heed some advice often thrown toward the left to read some effing Orwell. Hello, James. Hello. Nice to be here. Let's get stuck straight in. In a nutshell, what was the Spanish Civil War? Always a horrible question to ask a specialist of a subject, I guess. But mm. I'm going to I'm going to try and give you four nutshells, oh, such, as, such as it happens. It's, yeah. it's like a, a Russian doll of nutshells. At its at its most basic, the Spanish Civil War was an attempted military coup undertaken by kind of senior figures in the military, supported by a range of forces on the right in Spain. Classic coup scenario. It was. It was <laughs> it was and it followed in a long tradition of Spanish coups yep. called pronunciamientos. The military would intervene when they thought the country is is going in the wrong way. We yeah. need to take over and do this. But unlike most of those coups in the past in Spanish history, mm. this failed. It was met by large scale popular resistance mm. largely orchestrated around trade unions in major cities and loyal uh, kind of security forces about half right. the army yeah. and a major part of the kind of police forces as well so this kind of attempted and failed coup mm. fails in about the most of urban spain and quite a lot of you know it's about a third of the country goes with the coup this then develops into a civil war Wow. So that lasts for three years. And that's why, that's what it is at its most basic. It's mm. a failed coup that turns into a, a civil war. So what it is, is, is the result, I would say, of the breakdown or the failure to address serious long-term structural problems in Spanish society and state that have been evident since at least the mid-19th century. Oh, wow. You're looking, 1898 is often put as a date. It's mm. the loss of the Spanish, the last of the Spanish colonies mm -hmm. in war with the United States. They lose Cuba and the Philippines. And from that point, really, there are multiple fractures through mm -hmm. Spanish society and the failure really to address any of those. You can see these fault lines that run across all different kinds of things between people trying to secularize the state and kind of ardent supporters of Catholicism, mm -hmm. between kind of social liberals trying to do some is generally quite low level, but kind of economic redistribution or land reform between mm. revolutionaries who want an overthrow of the state, 
conservatives, you know, who really aren't into any of this, um, <laughs> as you might imagine. And it's like so they want to conserve the existing system. Or something, yeah, right? yeah, I mean, something about that that term just seems to attract people who don't like change. He's and. In 1931, basically, you get the, yeah. the Declaration of the Spanish Republic, the Second Republic. That's the context that we're in. Um, and is that a, like a liberal democracy? Basically, yeah. Mm. It's it's kind of, it comes together. There's a dictatorship in the 1920s that starts to kind of unravel. It's, it's mm. kind of a rightist, corporatist dictatorship. Okay. It's kind of loosely modeled on Mussolini, but it's mm. not really, uh, it's a very confusing time. Okay. <laughs> uh, not least for historians. Um, and then, you, so 1931, you have local elections in 1930, which show overwhelming majority of support for parties which want a republic. They want the the, the king to go. He goes, and then you have the establishment of the, the Spanish Second Republic. Generally, based around the axis of kind of centre-left middle-class Republicans and the huge socialist movement cool. in Spain, the PSOE. Mm. And they kind of bring in this republic with the idea of you could broadly see it in a tradition of, say, the French Revolution, ideas mm. of, of secularism, mm. secularizing the state, education reform, some sense of land reform, at the same time not really committed to economic redistribution in any sense. It mm. doesn't kind of push beyond that idea. And particularly the kind of liberal Republicans at the heart of this have a very kind of state-centered view of, of how things change. Yeah. If they enact the law... Then, you know, if they pass a law that, that brings about land reform, mm. then land reform will happen. Yeah. They pass a law that brings about land reform and it is totally rejected by all of the conservative <laughs> elites in the countryside <laughs> who just refuse to implement it. Yeah. And so, and then so you end up in this impasse really where the Republic isn't able or particularly willing to do the changes that will appease the people that supported it mm. and is loathed increasingly by an increasingly growing population on the right wow. as well and the far left. Who are the main factions then? Everything's a, res a result in the short term of, of a reaction to this fascist coup. So what's their agenda to start off with? And then we can get into who the other groups are. So, so on the right. Yeah, yeah on the yeah, right. Sure, the ones yeah. who, who did that coup initially yeah. or attempted yeah, yeah. coup. So again, to, I mean, yeah. I, I guess as is any historians want, I'm going to keep going backwards away from the actual point that we want to talk about. But with you know, Context, you've got to put it in context. Yeah. <laughs> but we're in the Republic yeah. still. And it's basically... You have some monarchists left over who don't, you know, who never liked the Republic to begin with. Right. They're quite a small faction, mm. because not least because the king is a bit of a drip. Okay. And no one really, no one genuinely really cares that much about him. But they're there. Where do you rank him? Is he below Nicholas II in terms of monarch quality? Oh, pretty awful. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not an expert, but Alfonso Thirteenth is, is generally regarded as a, as a complete disaster in most, <laughs> I don't know, if you care about... You know, oh, monarchy, monarch how they do it. Yeah. I okay. assume all our listeners have a monarch ranking. I guess Nicholas Sutton would be higher in terms of, you know, significance, but, yeah, you know, yeah. they're in a, they, they'd get on, yeah. I think. Yeah, they're yeah. probably related or something. Yeah. But, um, divine right, big divine right head. Yeah. And just, just thought it was his prerogative to, to do what he wanted and yeah. deeply corrupt and involved nice. in kind of colonial, disgusting colonial practices. And nice. yeah, just, just an all round bad egg. Do you like jewel-encrusted hats? Do you like the taste of regal boot? Do you like stuff that's hereditary? Diseases? Not working coriander. Then you'll love monarchy. This is the official mandatory redistribution party, Despicable Monarch Countdown. It's clickbait, but it's in your ears. Fine. Emperor Caligula of Rome. 
allegedly engaged in incest with his sisters and actually declared war on Neptune, god of the sea. Fuck, fuck, fuck the sea. Ooh. King Charles I of England, as well as trying to impose the Church of England on Scotland, he pissed off the English ruling class so much they cut his head off. Owned. Three. King Eric XIV of Sweden. Uh, Eric was so paranoid he arrested his own brother, sentenced a prominent family to death for no reason, then killed one of said family himself. He then fled to the woods where they found him like, a few days later dressed as a peasant. Relatable. Two. Tsar Nicholas II of Russia. Nicholas's numerous bad decisions, which included befriending a sex pest with magical powers and sending horseback swordsmen toward German machine guns, uh, ended his family's three centuries in power. Fucked it. One. King Leopold of Belgium. Under the pretense of missionary work, this piece of shit enslaved the people of the Congo, killing and torturing between 8 and 15 million people. Evil, Evil scum. The bloodthirsty homophobic rulers of Saudi Arabia and Brunei should obviously be overthrown immediately, but so should Queen Elizabeth II of England. Monarchy doesn't suck because individual monarchs are bad. It sucks because it represents inherited power and wealth. It perpetuates class hierarchy and because they always have terrible taste. Except Emperor Palpatine. That guy had an aesthetic. So yeah, we've got them. And then kind of much more importantly, you have senior figures generally of a particular kind of generation within the army. Mm. Um, Many of them have served in Morocco, which is the last kind of bastion Uh, of the Spanish overseas territories. It's not technically a colony, but that's, that's kind of where they come from. And then probably most importantly, during the, the years of the Republic, this growing mobilized Catholic mass support, which kind of forms around this group called Theda, mm-hmm. C-E-D-A. And that's the kind of main makeup of them, right? And then from 33 onwards, you have a very, very small, but important, explicitly fascist uh, movement called the Phalange or the Flanke. They are really the ones that start, those groups are the ones that start agitating. Mm-hmm. Really, Theda attempt, Theda kind of get into power for a couple of years, but they are then defeated in elections in 1936. And at that point, really a lot of the right turns against the notion that they can change the Republic from within. Right. It now becomes a, a you know, a movement towards military mm-hmm. coup. Mm-hmm. That's what we're going to do. That's what the right's done traditionally yeah, in Spain. Yeah. That's how we resolve problems. And the Falange begins to grow in influence at that point. You also get the Carlists on board, mm-hmm. if we're talking about different factions. They are a peculiar group. I would, I'm not an expert, but I'd say one of the few groups in kind of 20th century Europe that call for return to absolutist monarchy. Oh, wow. Like they are, they are dead into really re- like ultra reactionary nah. supporters of a, it's a very tedious story, but a, a supporters of an alternative royal line around this guy called Carlos in the 19th yeah. century. Um, they're mainly based in the Basque region of Navarre in the north. Nice. And so, they think they've got like a, the true king, the rightful heir narrative yeah, going on. They kind of give up on that quite quickly. <laughs> like they, they, they're not, they don't think it's a real, it's, they, I think they kind of know that they're not going to bring the, the pretender or the, you know, the Carlos line mm. to power. But nevertheless, they get on board because 
they are deeply Catholic. They are deeply hostile to the Republic, which mm -hmm. they see as, and this is this goes throughout the right. They see it as the first step towards communism. Democracy means the, there's more workers. There's more. There's more more working class people than there are rich people. And if everyone has one vote, then the logical conclusion of democracy is communism. Mm -hmm. now, obviously, it doesn't quite play out like that. But early 20th century, like yeah, people yeah, think, that, they don't it. they? And some of their analyses, you know, the, the you know of say like the Republic as well, is that they're not always against them. They don't see what's yeah. coming. You know, the, yeah. the left are going to take over. And I'd say the one thing that binds this together is their hostility to the Republic's secularization agenda and land okay. reform agenda. It's those big points that they they on like that that goes across the right mm. and they see it the republic as you know embodying this kind of liberal tradition that they loathe okay essentially before we get into the the left factions then, my question is what are the liberals doing because this sounds that kind of secular republic that sounds like a liberal project and is there is there a big center ground liberal group politically yes yeah. but in a kind of mass support way no right okay so so that kind of form some some republicans kind of break to the right once yep. they're once the you know things come down to it and mm -hmm. you have to choose i would say most probably are on center left -ish. okay and they're yeah. the ones that kind of bring the republic about mm. backed by the socialists of the persoy yeah but they very quickly stop participating very much in the republic so it, it's right. them that's holding on to this not particularly stable state formation yeah. of the second republic in a way almost as much as kind of defense of the church becomes such a big deal on the right mm. what kind of unites the parliamentary left and and the senate left is a desire for secularization a desire right. to remove that out and i'm not saying that this is the only factor in um, this, but those kind of middle Republicans are extremely hostile to economic reform. Mm. There's no sense of like a progressive taxation being brought in in Spain. Mm. Land reform, as I've said, kind of falls very far short of what it is. And this is because, again, these people in the center, they have some of the political power, mm. but they don't have mass support and they're, they're oh, wary okay. of it. Yeah. They're, they, they're coming from a, a tradition again of, of distrust of mass mm. politics. Mm. Uh, at a time when mass politics is happening, whether they like it or not. Yeah. And they don't have that constituency. And, they, and this is played out very quickly into the Civil War. So the people who stop the coup are more the, the real left rather than the centre, well, not, you know, whatever that means, mm -hmm. the left, the left yeah. broadly. Okay. Who are these guys? So we'll start, I guess we'll start with the PSOE, the socialist yeah. left, okay. um, who the biggest analogy we can make would be with Labour. Okay. To an extent, they're slightly different to Labour, but that kind of party. Mm. Committed to parliamentary change mm -hmm. on the whole they do get more radicalized there's a bit of a split within them but between the parliamentary ring and the kind of union okay ring. the union is the the ugt again you could loosely compare it to the tuc but the question really of what the socialists want is one that's not really that clear oh nice like it's one of the main kind of weaknesses of it is yeah. that they're huge and yeah. it's, they're often kind of in the civil war you don't often think about the persuade but they're mm. the largest probably of all the working class kind of movements and organizations it is unclear what their program is or oh, what they okay. hope to achieve by a lot of things nationalization sort of you know old labor clause four stuff are they or are they at times oh, but, right. okay. but it's, again it's hard so like their kind of radical leader yeah. lago caballero mm. i mean he cooperates with the dictatorship in the 1920s mm. which is problematic and then <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but but he's still called yeah. the, the Spanish Lenin oh, by right. some, and he you know again it's it's hard to pin the Pesoy down. If you look at them in power, yeah, what they seem to be doing is supporting the status quo, supporting okay. the republic, okay. basically, so that the republic can continue. But their membership wants them to be far more radical, wants them to be far more to the left. That of, sounds of where they are. They've got yeah. a huge, <laughs> so they've they've got a huge social base, unlike the liberals then, because they've got yeah. all the unions and mm-hmm. the, the workers' movement behind them. But yeah. not all, but yeah, a yeah. big chunk. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's them. Yeah. Then you have the I don't know which order we should do it. We'll go to the anarchists next because you know that's my. I feel or like. Do you, or do you want to leave them? I feel like in uh, the <laughs> we'll build up to yeah. the best. Um, <laughs> I feel like I might put in the notes for this episode like a sheet for the listener to fill in. Acronyms. Man, there are so many acronyms. I think it's in George Orwell when he said, "There's a plague of acronyms." We'll see how that goes. Um, so they're very, very small. Rather like no, not like this comparison, but rather like the. The Falange, the fascists, mm-hmm. there's a very small communist movement. Okay. So the actual kind of far left. They are very small before the war mm. and grow significantly in influence during the war. Mm. So we park them a bit as okay. we're at the kind of opening stages. So they exist, but they're yeah. influential only in a couple of areas. Are they, like you said earlier, that this is a, it is a civil war and it's mainly national, but... Mm-hmm. Are we talking like Soviet style, more authoritarian? Are they like following the Soviet line? Like yeah. this is communist, right? Okay, more or less, guys. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Loosely speaking, you can put them the PC. They are yeah. another acronym for you. They, okay. You can put them in that that kind of world. Yeah. There is then a dissident communist oh, faction, okay. the POUM, the mm-hmm. POUM, yeah. made famous by George Orwell, who went to fight for them because he wrote a book. Yeah. There. I've read that. I thought it was really good, and then I recently found out that he he got his notes confiscated and did it from memory. But I mean, your actual story of it is it a useful source like would you recommend people read it or i would yeah Yeah. um and as orwell says in it um i would read it bearing in mind that it isn't the only perspective that you can read on i think for some people their knowledge of the civil war begins and ends Mm. with orwell which i think is problematic but as an eyewitness goes i think he's wrong in lots of his analysis but again that's fine yeah yeah and he says as much quite often yeah i think you know definitely and he writes brilliantly mm. like it's it's fantastic to read and right? he's 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 in the p-o-u-m not the super authoritarian communists then no they would generally speak and they're kind of called trotskyists okay or they get called quasi trotskyists because is, they fell itself, out with yeah, trotsky yeah, yeah, himself yeah, yeah, yeah. andrea nin who is their leader was briefly trotsky's secretary ah, in russia oh that's um, interesting so they're they're there predominantly yeah. in catalonia and then you have the enormous anarcho-syndicalist movement. Okay. That's the other kind of big block there on the left. So explain what anarcho-syndicalism means. It might mean, I mean, that's a big question. Maybe just in the, in the context of Spain. Sure. Okay. Uh, what, what, what does that mean? Anarchism has a long tradition in Spain. The, the first international in the kind of mid-19th century. Um, in most countries, it tends towards a more either Marxist or social democracy side. In Spain, mm-hmm. it, it tends more towards a Bakuninist anarchist kind of side. Okay. And it keeps that kind of tradition for a long time. So unlike quite a lot of places, unionism and union organization is, in many areas in Spain, generally done under anarchist principles right um which creates numerous problems okay and conflicts how do you organize in a mass way along anarchist principles and yeah. this kind of follows the movement throughout 
its history. That's how do you how do you bridge that issue such as it is? Mm. They have kind of attempts at this. You can you can read my book if you want to hear about it in the 19th century. <laughs> that will move quicker than that. And yeah. then it's so in 1910 to 11, yeah. you get the formation of the CNT, okay. the Confederación Nacional del Trabajo. That is the the big anarcho syndicalist formation. If you're trying to think of analogies sort of like the TUC except mm. obviously with very different politics so lots of unions yeah huge amount of unions yeah. go in to support it there and what the principle is basically anarcho-syndicalism they want anarchist ends they mm. want to do, uh, abolish the state they want to level all relations of power including gender relations and mm. imperial relations and you know this expansive kind of libertarian goal yeah by to clarify sorry. good libertarianism the, uh, the, yeah. the use of libertarian to refer to like Ayn Rand and all that is it now infecting this country yeah um, in Europe that's not historically what it's meant <laughs> no, no no you'd never have it used in that way they, they call themselves libertarian yeah you know, but they're not fond of capitalism which is quite a big <laughs> um, a big problem they the my go-to thing of trying to explain the difference between yeah uh, anarchism and say Marxism would yeah. be like rather than economics being the the main and sole kind of drive, mm. but this is very vulgar Marxism. Yeah, I think. Uh, <laughs> certainly in Spain anyway. Spanish yeah, Marxists yeah. were quite schematic in that mm. it's just capitalism. Okay, that's your problem. Yeah, the anarchists would say it's capitalism, but it's also cultural oppression, which mm. is distinct from capitalism. Yeah. And the state and power itself. Mm. Actually, people want power for reasons that aren't just economic dominance. Anyway, we can move okay. from that. Yeah, yeah. Anarchist goals by syndicalist means. Mm. So by organizing in the workplace through unions, that's how we're going to bring about the revolution. Okay. That's how we go. That's how we're going to attract a mass support. And there's all layers of how you avoid institutional hierarchy and bureaucracy. Yeah. Um, delegates often will last six months or a year there's lots of different right. organizational principles that try to avoid what they loathe the mm. idea of of a kind of sclerotic union leadership yeah they it's highly federated the cnt okay. it, it has been claimed doesn't really exist in some sense right. because it has little kind of overarching power to to do to control the entire body so it's not like uh len mccluskey who's who, and then you know he's in charge and then he's got a bureaucracy around mm. him. like obviously he's elected and he's got a democratic yeah. legitimacy within his union but he's got him and those surrounding him have got a significant degree of like control over what the union's policy is and etc so it's not they've tried to avoid that they've tried to right yeah, yeah. so that throws up some problems definitely and yeah. like problems that are never really resolved like say this yeah. this, this balance is never wholly resolved yeah. why i find it fascinating yeah is less about kind of trying to show why it was right or wrong or oh, whether yeah. it did the right thing at this juncture is to work out how they tried to navigate these problems right. how they tried to get around these contradictions mm. in between ideology and practice and never really resolving that mm. tension um within the uh within the movement not just the cnt the yeah. movement is broader than that okay you tend to get three sort of tendencies you get those that are called almost gradualist you might say mm. Very, very keen on the union side of it. Yeah. They're quite fond of the Second Republic yeah. in some ways. You have purists who mm. are predominantly, like, they would probably would remove the syndicalist from their name. You know, okay. they're, they're kind of full-on anarchist yeah. principles. Uncut. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not too keen on, on that side, on the kind of organization side. And then mm. this group of called voluntarists who tend mm. to be insurrectionary-minded. Okay. Like they're, they're there to kind of push the revolution yeah. forwards. And these different factions kind of wax and wane in their strength within mm -hmm. the CNT. You also get in the mid 1920s another acronym, another, <laughs> another group from it's the last one, as far as I'm aware. Um, FAI formed to keep the CNT anarchist, and they become most prominent figures in the CNT 
are members of the five by the mm-hmm. civil war so you mm-hmm. have this group of people trying to keep things on the revolutionary side it's a very difficult organization to try and characterize there mm. are lots of people in it who are basically unionists and yeah. in your area the union that you belong to belongs to the cnt so you okay. go along with it whether they know the ins and outs of anarchist theory i very much doubt <laughs> but then you do have these extreme like hardcore anarchist theory bros well. yeah like they and you know so to say this is anarchist with a capital a Mm. Not so sure, but it's it's fascinating. Mm. One of the best stories uh, was told to me by Richard Clemenson, who's a great scholar works at Leeds, was uh, the FAI was actually founded, apparently, on a nudist beach in Valencia. <laughs> so they, so they, they, formed the, they formed it there. So um, that's the anarchist movement. There are attempts at insurrection. The Second Republic is very, very quick and very, very strong to repress yeah. the hard left. They are pretty antagonistic mm-hmm. to those on their left. Mm-hmm. There's much, probably more so actually than those on the right. They're keener to clamp down on that. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. Well, they're, they're terrified. They're terrified of revolution. And yeah. in a way, like legitimately so, because... Sounds like it's a legitimate threat. If it is. So it the is, CNT's yeah. a big faction then. Yeah. Okay. Looking at... So Spain's got around 20 to 25 million people mm-hmm. in this period. In 1919, the CNT's got a million members. Wow, okay. Mid-1930s, probably about half a million. And then at the outbreak of the war, about 1.5 million. So it's <sighs> it's a big chunk. And it's it's concentrated geographically. Barcelona, the southwest, so Seville, mm-hmm. Cadiz, those kind of areas. And yeah. then in uh, Valencia. You'll also then find the CNT strength in all major urban areas. But they dominate. <laughs> In those. Are they influential in the countryside as well? Because that's a that's a bit of a sort of received wisdom is that the workers are going to be more radical because they're in they've got more potential to organise because they're basically as simple as they're all together and being mm. exploited together geographically in the same building mm-hmm. and they're not you know making food that they need to eat and they can strike and stuff you know peasant yeah. goes on strike that's a horror show. Are they influential in the countryside? Not enormously, but they right. do have some in larger towns, particularly in Andalusia, mm. which is a you know, lots of lots of rural work goes on there. The actual organization of kind of society mm. tends to be in what are called agro towns, so mm. the big collection rather than kind of villages dotted around. Yeah. And they do tend to have a big CNT presence, but they are not, I don't think they're anything like as strong with rural workers as is sometimes portrayed. Okay. The, the movement is sometimes portrayed as, as one of landless laborers, Yeah, but it, it doesn't hold up. And when the socialists try and organize in the countryside, which mm-hmm. they do in the 1930s, mm. they get sweeping success there. And they, they, they right. kind of mop up a lot of that rural peasant support. Right. Um, so it kind of, it, it varies. In Andalusia, yes. In other yeah. areas, less so with that rural support. Why do you think that? It's immense. I mean, if you look at the labor conditions in rural Spain, it's it's immensely difficult to organize. Like it's semi-feudal okay. in a lot of places. And there is just, an, there is an excess of mm-hmm. labor. So... Mm-hmm. As you say, strikes don't right. work. Right, okay. It's less peasants, it's more landless laborers. When you have a surplus, huge mm. surplus of labor, mm. see, and that only is needed seasonally, it right. becomes very difficult to organize. Now, the ideas of anarchism are often quite popular, mm. but to relatively limited success in terms of like turning that into mobilization. The CNT's successes are generally mass strikes. Right, in, in, okay. in, in kind of industrial areas. So is that what the, so the coup happens and then we get these mass strikes and that's the, the epicenter of resistance to that mm-hmm. right-wing yeah. coup. And that's successful in, not obviously everywhere because then it would, there wouldn't be a civil war, yeah. but that's successful in certain areas. And then you've got three years of war. Mm-hmm. So these factions, I guess, in their, in their particular area, they attempt to apply a form of their beliefs mm-hmm. 
in the in pol- politics and economy. Yeah. How did people organize their uh, their labor and their politics in these areas controlled by the left during the war? What follows a coup yeah. is basically whether or not you want to call it the state collapses mm-hmm. or it at least unravels quite dramatically mm-hmm. and kind of central political power is lost in the Republican zone right. to a large extent. Okay. And as you say, it's basically power is taken up by whoever steps into that vacuum. Okay. So in Madrid, which is a predominantly socialist city, there's the yeah. CNT presence there, but mainly socialist. And it's also obviously where the national government is. Mm. It quite quickly becomes the site of the kind of reestablishment of the Spanish state. Mm-hmm. There isn't a huge amount of social revolutionary change there. Mm-hmm. In Barcelona, it's the CNT right. really, that, that faces down the, the military coup. Mm. And there you have profound revolutionary moment. And this is where this is where there's kind of eyewitnesses like Orwell to an extent, mm. or someone like Mary Lowe, who was there early in the war. I mean, there's all kinds of debates about the the extent of the revolution and why it unraveled and so on. But in those early months, it's kind of hard to deny that that people did take things into their own hands, mm. that something approximating a libertarian revolution mm-hmm. occurs in Barcelona and its surrounding towns in mm-hmm. Catalonia. Workers organizing and taking over factories. Often uh, owners will have left. Okay. Like if they if they're rightists, they will have <laughs> left or they will have been shot. Yeah. Or they are just kind of removed from power. Mm-hmm. And industrial production largely becomes a collective, collectivized mm. um, concern in many areas in Barcelona. Mm. So, um, public transport is one that, that seems to work particularly well, like all the trams. You'll get painted with black and red and they oh. go around and they're collective, collectivized and so on. So you get this industrial collectivization there, which as much as it is according to some kind of anarchist principles, mm. it is also a response to the situation. Yeah. That, like things need to happen, yeah. you know, like an industry needs to function and there's no one telling anyone what to do. So people do it themselves. And it just works. Yeah. In many places, yeah. It's hard to give a kind of overarching thing, but I mean, the industry in Barcelona continues to function. Mm. And there's some good good accounts of it. And, you know, people disagree within the collectives and, that you know, they're not... You wouldn't want to say that they were, like, perfect or, like, the kind of untouchable thing. Well, nothing else. It's utopianism, no. is it? That's, yeah, no. no one. But you do sometimes, you know... In a way, sometimes you get drawn into arguments with kind of yeah. all or nothing. Either it was, like, the best idea <laughs> okay. ever or, like, it was an unmitigated disaster. Yeah. What it was was a response. And the response was framed by their prior politics to mm. an extent which tended towards collective bottom-up ownership mm. and that's what happened but the cnt wasn't directing it necessarily they weren't mm. saying go and collectivize xyz yeah they, it was happening and the cnt was kind of then working it out so the cnt has power basically mm. in the streets of barcelona and they are essentially offered power by the leader of the catalan regional government oh wow says you are masters of the city. Yeah. It's yours. And well, they they, so, yeah. so they have de facto power. And then yeah. the guy, the person who has like de jure power basically goes, well, actually, they, there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than just trying to cling on pointlessly. Yeah. yeah. But this then, you know, this is one of the key moments. It's exposing them. Well, what do you do then if you're an anarchist group, organization, so on? Oh, and you've been given the state. <laughs> de jure power. And, yeah. And okay. They, they don't, they have a long discussion about what they should do and then yeah. they don't take it up and state power is allowed to reconstitute slowly in barcelona from that point on this is days in this Mm. is the day after the coup is put down so that's there next to catalonia you have Mm. aragon okay um which is large largely agricultural province Mm -hmm. which is where the vast majority of rural collectivization right takes place and there's debates in the historiography about was this a spontaneous Mm -hmm. thing with the spanish peasantry you know from the bottom up they come and they collectivize the land uh, or was this imposed by 
CNT militants mm. from Barcelona coming and kind of forcing collectivization at gunpoint. Mm. I think really, if you read all the different accounts, it's there's a bit of both. Yeah, it's just complicated. Like, again, it's not again. It's not easy to draw a kind of mm. absolute line. But what goes on there? And this is one of the things that really marks out the Spanish Revolution. This mm. bottom up ish collectivization mm. of the land. Most land in the village will be placed in common. Tools will be placed in common. Wow. Um, if you one in some collectives you can maintain a kind of private plot to, mm. to grow separate things if you like there's some efforts to kind of industrialize the countryside because as mm. i said this is particularly aragon is a very yeah. poor area like again you're looking at conditions that you wouldn't see in england mm. in the early 19th century in some mm. places the level of mechanization and right. things is, is very low and so there is an effort there you have to form a different sort of economy around that and some efforts to coordinate these collectives you know at a, at a kind of provincial level as well to, yeah. to give a sense of organization but the interesting thing about that is i'm just kind of making links to the stuff i know about the soviet union so mm -hmm. in the in the russian civil war both sides the whites and the reds but well, both the two main sides were requisitioning grain from the peasant. You know, the, the, there wasn't that sp spontaneous, it wasn't allowed to be that spontaneous uprising. I think Lenin said like, oh, you can have the land, but then sent out requisition squads mm. to take the grain. So they did produce food and then it also infrastructure was working well enough that it was getting to the cities or... Yeah, yeah, to an extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah there's there's massive food shortages, but whether yeah. that comes from collectivization or because actually really the nationalists are controlling <laughs> most of the agricultural, the high yield agricultural lands. Yeah. So there is there is collectivization that's mm. also not anarchist, okay. predominantly anarchist, yeah, uh, or mixed. Mm. Uh, so in the south, in in parts of rural south that stay with the republic, mm. there's often kind of mixed collectives who, you know, some anarchist members, some socialist members. Yeah. In Valencia, which is a very rich agricultural region, uh -huh. oranges are the main export of the republic. Yeah. They're the only way they make money. Little tangy boys. Yeah. But, um, there's, you know, it, I think it, it functions differently there. Yeah. But also in the in those kind of richer areas, there's greater pushback from okay. well private property, yeah, landowners, yeah, right. smallholders. Mm. They 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 will accept some sense of uh, of collectivization, but not a kind of libertarian anarchist okay. sense. So there's conflict throughout. But again, if you want that kind of takeaway thing, is yes, a, a significant amount of people, peasants in Spain took it upon themselves to reorganize the way that agriculture worked for them and mm. for those around them. And it worked in many yeah. ways and undoubtedly made life better for the poorest. Whilst there's definitely conflicts and there's discussions over who benefits here, who I think it's unquestionable that mm. that level of society gained from this shift in how yeah, agriculture work, was organized. Worker self-management. Yeah. How, um, how was the military organized, you know, the CNT's part, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it's obvious how the kind of more Stalinist factions are going to organize their military, but how, how did the, uh, the CNT organize their fighters? Because I know a bit about, so Nestor Makhno, who is um, a Ukrainian anarchist and was a faction in the Russian Civil War. Makhno had um, anarchist and more democratic mili anarchist militia. He, I think he, he made a temporary alliance with the Reds against the whites, uh, the reactionary forces, and then was betrayed by Trotsky and the, the Bolsheviks. Mm. And it wasn't his military structure that failed him uh it was oh, the, the, Bol the bolsheviks mm. so i'm interested to see to know what happened there with the cnt and how they're I'm, I'm, did they have like anarchist militias kind of democratically controlled again when when the coup is defeated by these kind of union organizations mm. again you have to say alongside loyal security forces but we don't need to talk about them <laughs> um, <laughs> they were important but yeah, it's yeah, less yeah, interesting yeah. so yeah um 
And so, yeah, all of these factions that we spoke about earlier right. have their militias. Okay. They have the communist militias who are particularly well-organized yeah. and well-drilled, socialist militias and CNT militia mm. columns, huge ones forming mm. in Barcelona. And they go off. It ties into the collectivization debate as well because mm. they leave Barcelona yep. for Aragon right. for, to try and capture Saragossa, yep. which is a big CNT city, but it falls to the um, uprising, to the coup. Okay, early on. listener, next to your uh, acronym <laughs> list, get your map out. Look on a map and see where Barcelona is. Zaragoza is basically just west, okay. due west. And so they set off. Yeah. Um, famously, the column led by Doruti, a one of these kind of voluntarists I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, these people that like armed insurrectionary yeah. anarchists, thousands of people, again, no military hierarchy, mm. discipline. It's meant to be a spontaneous movement of the mm-hmm. people. Also from Valencia, you get the Iron Column, mm. who are made up of pretty hardcore FAI members mm. and uh, prisoners. Oh, wow. Pris- the prisons are opened and armed political prisoners. And they marched north. And this is, and then, a lot of the controversies around mm. anarchism in the Civil War come from these movements of militias. Okay. Almost certainly they did, you know, enact violence on people as yep. they pass through, as any kind of uh, yes, war. organization yeah. would. So, yeah, and so it's hard. The, the militias then, mm. in general, particularly the anarchist ones, come under increasing pressure from the government mm. from autumn of 1936 onwards mm. to militarize, okay. to join the regular army. Mm. Um, because basically what's going on is the zone around kind of Madrid, Barcelona, Valencia, that's relatively stable for the mm. Republic. But what's happening is Franco's army of Africa is just cutting through Western Spain and and these militia armies are, are collapsing in front okay. of it. So there's this kind of relentless march towards Madrid. The central government sees its priority and mm. they're getting big backing from the communists to do this okay. and the Soviet Union to militarize, to formalize because right. it's seen the militia system is seen as a disaster. It's hard to judge because mm. it doesn't last long enough in a way or there wasn't like an alternative right. system presented Deruti himself seems to go a little bit back and forward about what he thinks should happen mm. he's seen to on the one hand resist militarization but then sometimes doesn't really mm. do that so by militarization we mean a rigid hierarchy as you'd see in a normal army as opposed to uniforms discipline yeah no like voting on what you do okay. and all of these things that have been part of militia life and why many people joined up in the first place and many leave as mm. this militarization increases. Deruti dies during the siege of Madrid, and that's seen right. as a, you know, that that is a big moment. Mm. Um, he then becomes a figure for more or less anyone. Okay, and everyone projects what they want yeah. to happen. So then by spring 37, most of the militia columns have militarized. Wow, so quite early in the, yeah, in the it's, war. It's pretty quick. From the Leninist angle, I know that that, you know that that argument would always be, the thing Leninism's got is that Leninist revolutions succeed, I would say, on what criteria. But, uh, you you know, you need a hierarchy to fight a hierarchy as there tends to be the argument like, and I'm just inter- interested of like, did they fail because they were democratic? Like, was that justification there? Because to my mind, it would probably like if I was Stalin at this point, I would basically say, well, you're not having guns unless you organize in the way I want. Because Stalin doesn't want anarchism, right? That, that is exactly what he said. All oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, I, that's precisely I'm sorry, I'm uh, thinking like Stalin, oh, which is now very, very worrying. Very accurately like Stalin. Yeah. <laughs> 
Soviet, the Soviet Union is the only only international country apart from Mexico who who do very early support the republic. But okay. what they can possibly do is quite limited. They yeah. send some quite old guns. Basically, yes, the Soviet Union is giving material and advisors to the republic, mm. and that is channeled very much to the PCE, to mm-hmm. the Communist Party in Spain, and to the government, to the yeah. to recognized government. And what they would say is, we're not we're not giving it to you unless to, you militarize, which is a problem in Spain, which doesn't really have a massive arms industry. They ha- they start to get one together, okay, um, or oil particularly okay. or petroleum, and so they are again these t- the terms of this support become increasingly apparent right. and important that can be read and has been read by some people as a kind of again as this inevitability yeah you know the, the, this revolution was ridiculous it could never survive in the context in which it was in yeah that's not my takeaway from it i think basically as you as you said it was quite short mm. that these militia comes and you can say the same about collectivization in october 36 collectivization is legalized mm. by both the catalan and central governments all oh, right but by legalization mm. they actually mean contained Container. Ah, they say this is right, what you from this point yeah. only only industry and land that's been taken from former fascists or rebels yes. or right, can be collectivized and yeah. by that point it more or less all has so there's to be no further reorganization of the okay. economy in a way these two of the biggest kind of impacts of the revolution mm. the militia columns and the collectivization within months the turn is starting to move against them. The revolution is mm-hmm. is already kind of on the wane. Not inevitably. I don't think there's any sense that it's kind of destined to fail, but it, right. it, you can see this kind of taking place. We try that again and again, and we know that it ends in death camps, gulags, repression, and murder. In brief, and I say this with the greatest respect, Please read some fucking Orwell. These are the words of disgraced comedian Robert Webb, writing in response to disgraced comedian Russell Brand's advocation of revolution. Webb seems to suggest that George Orwell would be hostile to socialist revolution, despite the fact that in Spain, Orwell fought with communists and anarchists in an actual revolutionary war. Though we can perhaps forgive Webb's misunderstanding, given his undergraduate study of English at the disgraced Cambridge University. What's for breakfast? A hot pint of brainworms. Again. Yay! In his 1941 essay, The Lion and the Unicorn, Orwell wrote, The difference between socialism and capitalism is not primarily a difference of technique. One cannot simply change from one system to the other as one might install a new piece of machinery in a factory and then carry on as before with the same people in positions of control. Obviously, there is also needed a complete shift of power. New blood, new men, new ideas. In the true sense of the word, a revolution. Oh no, Robert Webb. I read some Orwell and it told me to do a revolution. Am I the buddies? Am Orwell buddies? Webb isn't alone. Demands to read some fucking Orwell are everywhere, flung toward anyone on the political left of Nick Clegg circa 2010. Broken promises. There have been too many in the last few years. You remember them? Fairer taxes, 
A promise broke, better schools for everyone. A promise broke. I believe it's time to do things differently. A trail of broken promises. Broken promises. Read some fucking Orwell, Nick. Picture the scene. We are on the internet. A trans woman correctly suggests she has a right to be referred to by her preferred pronouns. A reply suggests this is fascism. An example of newspeak. And suggests our hero read some fucking Orwell. Ah yes, because nothing emanates the power of Big Brother like an individual online expecting a basic courtesy. Come over here and look at this different part of the internet. A man has emptied his milkshake onto a fascist's head. Oh, you what you fucking do that for? You retweet a video of this with praise, perhaps even a little jokey caption. Sweet. Or shook. Soon, internet user Cliffs of Dover Ham Sandwich 97 confronts you with the suggestion that this horrific violence is not sweet. And you should be shook by the demise of free speech. That milkshake wasn't just cold, it was chillingly Orwellian. For people like this, reading Orwell means vaguely remembering phrases from 1984 and Animal Farm. Orwell's writing isn't just those phrases. For example, in the 1946 essay, Why I Write, Orwell writes, After the Spanish Civil War, I knew where I stood. Every line of serious work that I had written since 1936 has been written, directly or indirectly, against totalitarianism and for democratic socialism. Writing to a friend about Animal Farm, one of the two faves, Orwell explains that he meant the moral to be that revolutions only affect a radical improvement when the masses are alert and know how to chuck out their leaders as soon as the latter have done their job. If we take this Orwell as critical of revolutions, his criticism isn't of revolution as a whole. His criticism is that the ones that have happened haven't gone far enough, that they've turned into new hierarchies and been insufficiently democratic. For the likes of Cliffs of Dover Ham Sandwich 97, who warn that milkshaking Tommy Robinson is Chillingly Orwellian. And for the Orwell fan who thinks that anti-fascists are Here's another Orwell quote. When I joined the militia, I had promised myself to kill one fascist. After all, if each of us killed one, they would soon be extinct. Now I'm not saying Orwell was some pristine hero in the struggle against fascism and capitalism. Who is? Sonic the Hedgehog. Unsurprisingly, glimmers of sexism, racism, homophobia appear in his work, and in 1949, the same year 1984 came out, warning everyone about a surveillance state, Orwell wrote a list dobbing in leftists to the British state. Loads of people on there, like Labour MP Michael Foote's on there, Charlie Chaplin. But through most of his short life, and especially after fighting in Spain, Orwell saw himself as a committed socialist, and even advocated for revolution. Old Georgie boy didn't like totalitarian states, but he didn't see capitalist Britain as some bastion of free expression either. In the unpublished intro to Animal Farm, Orwell warns, The British press is extremely centralised, most of it owned by wealthy men who have every motive to be dishonest on certain important topics. The same kind of veiled censorship also operates in books and periodicals, as well as in plays, films and radio. 
Anyone who challenges the prevailing orthodoxy finds himself silenced with surprising effectiveness. So, yeah, um, I guess my point is, it seems like the people who love to say, read some fucking Orwell, should uh, read some fucking Orwell. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about the CNT entering government. You said before they were offered the de jure government control of the, the state, but basically declined it. Is that... Yeah, so that's where we to are. an extent. Yeah. And then from that point, as the, what's called the Generalitat, which is mm. the Catalan regional government, mm. reforms the CNT joint, which is a strange okay. oxymoron, contradiction, all these things. And then in October, November, they're invited to join the national government yeah. of the socialist of Largo Caballero, who mm. we spoke about before. Mm. CNT, four ministers. Are, 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 so you have, yeah. at that point, four anarchist cabinet ministers. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. One of whom is one of my favorite facts about it. One of whom, Federica Monsegni, yeah. um, is a hardcore purist anarchist. And she becomes one of the first, if not the first, I always forget this fact, but mm. um, female cabinet ministers in Europe was wow. an anarchist. And <laughs> Minister for Health, she approved the legalization of abortion for the first time in Spanish history. Oh, wow. This is what I said earlier about the contradictions or oxymorons that are going yeah. on and they justify this to themselves and to the movement as well there's a there's a headline in 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 the cnt newspaper basically mm. the nature of the state has changed oh, um, oh yeah. god so they do that but you know they see it as a necessity they see yeah. it as like you know this has to be one and and you know throughout you've got this dichotomy of war or revolution mm. this is how it's framed by the central government definitely mm -hmm. By the, by the communists, they say, you need to put aside this revolution and focus on the war. Mm -hmm. Now, the bulk of anarchist support that still support the revolution mm -hmm. would say, the two are inseparable. We'll yeah. only win this war by by the revolution. Yeah, the means shape the ends, yeah. That's not what these senior figures in the CNT seem to think. They seem to think that revolution has happened mm -hmm. and can then be preserved by their presence in government. It's almost like their presence in government is somehow shaping their politics and decision-making. Anyone would think that. <laughs> I wonder if anyone suggested that that's a process that could happen. It's, it's, it is fascinating. It is fascinating. And, it, and again, the temptation is to kind of castigate these people yeah. as traitors and, you know, to a large extent they are, I guess, yeah. kind of ideologically. But you read their memoirs, the context in which it will happen. I'm not trying to excuse it, but trying yeah, to yeah. understand. I don't doubt that Monsigny was a committed anarchist. And I don't doubt that she thought that what she was doing was highly problematic mm -hmm. and yet came to the point where she thought this is what has to be done. Mm -hmm. And then she later completely changed her mind again. So it's it's about her ideology interacting with with what's going on. From that point, autumn, autumn of 36 on, mm. you're getting this slow kind of chipping away really at the revolution. Madrid is very famously defended in November 1936. It's a brilliant moment for the left, uh, the anti-fascist left. It becomes this European symbol of, of the struggle against fascism. Mm -hmm. But then from then, Series of defeats, Malaga falls, spring 37, things are looking bad. And the PCE are increasingly, and other groups in the kind of central government are mm. increasingly saying, look, we need this militarization. You know, you're not doing it. We, like, we need central command. This revolution mm. has to stop. Increasingly chipping away at the revolutionary gains made by the, the anarchist movement. And this kind of culminates in May uh, 1937 an events called the May Days. There's an attempt by Catalan security forces to seize the CNT held Telefonica in central oh, yeah. Barcelona, which anyone who goes there, you'll see it in the mm. Plaza de Catalunya. And this provokes a kind of mass mobilization on the left, yeah. on, uh, of the left of the 
CNT and the Poom, who we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So George Orwell was involved in these in this okay. street fighting barricades between the forces of state reconstruction, mm. the Generalitat, the Republicans, Socialists, Communists, and CNT mm. leadership. They get flown in to to tell their members to stand down, and they don't. Um, wow. And yeah, and then you have like the kind of bulk of the CNT popular support and, and radical mm. on the left. It's, a, it's kind of a stalemate for mm. four or five days, and then the government brings in shock police troops, mm. and they they break it all up. And that's seen as the the kind of the symbolic end of the revolution. It's wow. where the CNT's power in the street has gone. Wow. So their de facto power, as we talked about earlier, yeah, that's where it's broken. Then from that point, the army goes into Aragon and breaks up the collectives. The mm. rural collectives are then broken up. There's a no, what's called a normalization. And to clarify, this is happening in the Republic-controlled areas. Yeah, yeah. This yeah, is inter-Republican yeah. struggle. It's very hard to say, you know, again, people often see that the very strong narrative of the revolution betrayed. That, yeah. that, that comes through in Orwell. Often, and who's betraying it, it's often seen at the PCE, the Communist Party, the Stalinists. Right. Yeah. You know, they've, yeah. They've done it. And certainly they're involved. They certainly enact violence after the May Days mm. on um, the Poom, for example, mm-hmm. their leader Nin is arrested and tortured and murdered, probably by NKVD agents. Right. There is that. I'm uncomfortable with the term revolution betrayed yeah. because the PC and all of the other factors in the Republican state who we can't forget are the ones who have much more power than the PC. Yeah. They never wanted the revolution in the first place. <laughs> so they're, they're not betraying yeah. it. They've always yeah, yeah, been yeah. against it. If anyone did, it's probably the CNT leadership. And even then, I think it's slightly unfair. Mm. It's it's more, as I said, that it's the culmination of anti-statist and statist mm-hmm. developments that have been going on. And they reached this this crescendo mm. in the spring of 37. You can read accounts and it's like, mm. you'd imagine that CNT just ceases to exist. Mm. It's still a huge organization. It just, it just doesn't have that power. 37, that's the end of that. And the war goes on for another two years. Oh, nice. <laughs> but, you know, that's the, that's the kind of nuts and bolts of the, the revolutionary story. Yeah. One thing that, again, I'd also mention and want to get the big strand of it that I think is really important is, is the overturning in many areas of, of gender relations. Right. Of, um, it's a big strand in the anarchist movement, like for kind of gender liberation, for yeah. gender equality. They have a, an organization that kind of it's not in the CNT, but kind of mm-hmm. adjunct uh, called uh, the Free Women, the Mujeres Libres. And they organized to fight sexism in society, but also mm. within the anarchist movement, of which there's a lot. Okay, And it's very highly critical of kind of, you know, patriarchal practices within the CNT. Yeah. And, you know, they, 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 go, they do an awful lot during the Civil War, lots of education projects, lots of, um, you know, uh, mobilizing women, teaching them to read in many cases, illiteracies, huge, uh, particularly amongst women in Spain. You know, the idea that culture has power, people can be dominated in mm. a, in, by society in ways that aren't just, you know, w- the workplace or, yeah. uh, you know, like, so that cultural emancipation is essential. It's not a revolution if yeah, it's yeah. not liberating women. And they weren't perfect about it, like, they yeah. like, certainly. But there's no other group on the left mm. that, that paid even a, a fraction of the attention towards kind of women's liberation. Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our guest this episode was James Yeoman, whose book, Print Culture and the Formation of the Anarchist Movement in Spain, is out next year. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean. Other music in this episode was created by Jack Evans. If you liked this sweet, sweet content, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Cheers.